Well, this morning we have a lot of ground to cover, so I'm going to go ahead and invite you to take your Bibles, your devices, and turn with me again uh, to the book of Esther for a second part of a message as we continue our series we've been in called Heroes of Faith. Now, if you were not with us last week for uh, part one for the, in the book of Esther, let me kind of give you the cliff notes to catch up to speed, because otherwise what we're going to talk about today may not totally make sense because you don't know the backstory of what's going on. Uh, so King Xer- Xerxes and his wife uh, Vashti are in charge of the Persian Empire uh, at this point. And uh, Esther, a young lady who was orphaned and adopted by her older uh, cousin Mordecai, uh, kind of raises her up like a daughter. And so in the book of Esther, there was a remnant of Jews, a lot of them had been taken into Babylonian captivity, but a remnant of Jews uh, stayed back and they were there in Persia. They were, uh, certainly had very little influence, very little impact there uh, in Persia. And so King Xerxes, which is his Greek name, had been throwing a six-month party. And what we see in the book of Esther is the final week of this party is playing out, and really the party uh, was about celebrating his greatness. He was uh, Captain Humble, if you will, right? And so in the final week of his party, celebrating all that he had done, all that he'd accomplished as the king, uh, as the final kind of crescendo, uh, he brings out his wife Vashti, or at least he desires to, uh, not so that she can get glory, so that he can get glory. She's kind of a trophy wife. And so he's going to call her out in front of all these people. Uh, they had been drinking quite a bit at this point. And so he's like, I'm going to finally parade my wife out. And everyone's going to see not only my great leader, uh, but I've got a wife who is beautiful. However, much to his surprise and his anger, Vashti refuses. I'm not doing it. I'm not coming out. And so at that time, uh, she loses her title. She eventually, because of that, loses her life. And so Esther, which is her Persian name, uh, by the way, is chosen to replace Vashti because of her beauty. And along comes a guy uh, by the name of Haman. Uh, He's given a lot of power by the king. And so as a result of that, Haman decides, hey, here's a good idea. Because I've given all this power by the king and I'm really important, everybody I come into contact with should bow down and worship me. And so, uh, along the way, he encounters Mordecai, and Mordecai refuses. Mordecai is a faithful Jew, and so he said, I'm not going to break the command uh, to have other gods before the one true God. And so, as you can imagine, this infuriated Haman. So Haman comes up with a plan. He says, hey, I'm going to extinguish all the Jews. Because of this, I'm going to extinguish all the Jews. And so uh, Mordecai goes to his cousin Esther, and he says, Esther, he says, listen, uh, for such a time as this, God has promoted you to a position of influence in the kingdom, and I want you to go and advocate on behalf of our Jewish people before the king so that our people are not uh, wiped off the face of the planet. There's only one problem. She has yet to tell the king that she, in fact, uh, was Jewish as well, which is kind of of a big deal. And so what we learned last week is despite uh, this being the only book in the Bible where God is not explicitly mentioned, uh, we see his activity all on display as he's sovereignly and providentially orchestrating events to care for his covenant people. Uh, We learned last week that God's purposes cannot be stopped by the most ungodly of leaders like Xerxes and Vashti. Uh, We also learned that our simple acts of obedience have an impact on the world around us. 
that it's through our obedience that we get to align uh, our lives with the kingdom purposes of what God is doing uh, in redemptive history. So that was kind of part one. So that's the cliff notes of where we've been in the first half of the book of uh, Esther. And so today, I want to look at two more truths uh, from the second half of the book of Esther. So we're going to start off today in chapter 5. And uh, I'm going to be looking at verses 9 through 14, but let me give you a little background what's going on in 1 through 8, so when we get to verse 9, you kind of know where we're on-ramping here, okay? So in verses uh, 1 through 8, Esther gets an audience with the king. This was a big deal, because if you got, didn't get invited to the king's presence, and you went there and, uh, unannounced and unwelcome, uh, that could literally cost you your life. But she goes in and gets an audience with the king, and it, and it goes well, and so he says, Esther, what can I do for you? And she says, hey... I want you and your right-hand man, Haman, to come to a feast that I've prepared. And so the king says, hey, count me in. I'm there. Haman's coming with me, all right? So that's what's going on. We're going to pick up the narrative here starting in verse 9. I'm going to read down chapter 5, verse 9, down through uh, verse 14 this morning. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. Right, he just got invited to this feast. He's the only guy besides the king is going, so like he's thrilled. However, his fortune changes really quickly. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. And then Haman said, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also, I'm invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me. So as long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. And then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, let a gallows, 50 cubits high be made. And in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. Now, uh, is it just me, or did the story of Esther just take a wrong turn, Right? Like she goes in, she's brave, Mordecai says, hey, for such a time as this, and, and it's going to cost old Morty his life is what's going to happen, right? Like that's not how you want a prayer request answered, that they're constructing gallows is how you want this story to play out, but that's exactly what happened. So what we see playing out here in chapters 5, 6, and 7, this first truth is simply this, is that God chooses to act in his timing, not ours. Now, if I could be transparent this morning, uh, I find that incredibly annoying. Amen? That God acts in his own sovereign timing. It's very frustrating that often when I find I'm in a hurry to discover that God, in fact, is not. Now, just as a fun way possibly to spark an argument after church on the way home, if you're sitting next to someone who is chronically late, would you just raise your hand up really high? Yeah, if you're scared, just blink your eyes really fast, all right? Some folks, it doesn't matter. You get started three hours, four hours early. It doesn't matter. They're going to be late. I don't know what's wrong with them, right? 
And so while that descriptor may be true of the person sitting next to you, and sometimes it's funny, can we just be honest, sometimes it's not funny, amen? The one person that that can never be ascribed to being late is our sovereign, faithful God. Someone much wiser than me once quipped, God is seldom early, but he is never late. And somehow to all you procrastinators, that's probably strangely comforting, is it not? And so what we see here is uh, Esther approaches the king. And all of a sudden the king says, hey, I want you to come to this party. And Haman's like, hey, this is, this is great. And he walks out and there's Mordecai. And once again, he's furious. How dare he not bow down to me? Does he not know who I am? Does he not know the position I've been exalted to? Does he not know that all that I've been entrusted with? And so not only does he say, hey, I'm going to kill Mordecai, he's going to build some gallows to accomplish the task. So Mordecai, the story seemingly takes a wrong turn, and Mordecai is due for death by hanging. But God. The two most hope-filled words in the Bible are not explicitly used here, but they certainly are on display. God intervenes in his perfect sovereign timing. Turn over to chapter 6. We learn that on the evening before Mordecai is about to be hanged, uh, it just so happened that the king was having a hard time falling asleep. Just a side note, your Bibles, if you want to put that out there, they didn't have uh, melatonin that day, all right? And so the king is restless, and he can't sleep, and so he just says, hey, uh, I'm going to uh, give orders to my servants, and, and I want to come, and I don't know totally what this uh, book actually is. He said, I'm going to have my servants come, and, I, and I, it's a sleepless night uh, for me. There was no Netflix, there was no melatonin, there was no Facebook or Instagram to scroll, right? And so what's he do? He says, hey, I want you guys to bring me the book of memorable deeds, I don't know, totally know what that is, but apparently any time in that kingdom that someone did good, they wrote that down and they recorded that. And so he says, hey, why don't you guys bring me that book and read to me uh, from the book of memorable deeds. And it just so happened, providentially I would add, that what was read to him was the deeds of how Esther, uh, Mordecai, told Esther about the plot and the king's servants were going to kill him. And they said, hey, here's some deeds recorded, did you? Did you know that Mordecai did this? Did you know that he did this on behalf of his people? And so look how the king responds in chapter 6, verse 3, what he says. He says, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? This is incredibly noble, heroic, courageous deed. So surely this guy's been recognized, he's been celebrated, he's been exalted. And the king's young men who are attending him said, nothing in fact has been done for him. Now, not by chance or coincidence, but again by providence, at that exact moment, Haman walks in. And you can imagine, Haman's not saying, hey, I agree, let's celebrate Mordecai. As a matter of fact, when he walks in, he's there to make the case to the king that Mordecai should in fact uh, be placed on the gallows uh, tomorrow. But before he could speak, and make his case about why Mordecai could be executed, the king says, hey, wait, wait just a minute, wait just a minute before I lose my train of thought here, right? He says, there's a guy, I don't know what you're going to say, but there's a guy that I just learned about just a few moments ago that I think he should be honored above everyone else tomorrow. Now, 
Here's what we know about Haman. He is as proud as a peacock, right? Which, by the way, how proud is a peacock? I don't know. And so ultimately, what's Haman think? He's thinking, it's me, right? I'm that guy. I'm the guy who the king wants to exalt. I've already been put in second command. I've got all this influence. And so the king's talking about someone who's so honorable that deserves to be honored. And what he's thinking is, uh, clearly I'm that guy. So you know what he does? He just kicks into overdrive. Look at the end of verse 6. And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Captain Humble, right? And so Haman said to the king, he's just pouring it on here. For the man whom the king delights to honor, let the royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set, verse 9. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king's delights to honor. Let them lead him on a horse to the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And so uh, Haman just poured on because he thinks, it's me, I'm that guy, I deserve this. And so he says, these are all the wonderful ways that we can exalt this person, all the while thinking it's himself. And by the way, the king says, hey, great idea, I agree, and that man is my good friend Morty, right? And so Haman is shocked. But he's already said, this is what should happen. I mean, can you imagine him saying now, like, hey, whoa, whoa, I thought that was me. I didn't know it was Mordecai, I thought that was me. So he just uh, goes and does as he's instructed. He goes home, he's devastated. He told his wife and his friends what happened and looked down at verse 13. Remember, he's kind of had a bad day here, right? And listen to verse 13, when he goes home and tells his wife and his friends the story that just played out with the king, how he wants to exalt Mordecai and all those things. In verse 13, he says this. Uh, his friends say, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. I think that's what we call a bad day turning worse, right? Not only are you not that guy who's going to wear the robe and ride on the king's horse and be prayed in front of all these people and exalted, but his friends, when they heard that, they said, hey, if he in fact is of the Jewish people, then guess what? Not only are you not going to be exalted, but you're going to fall before him. God's sovereign intervention at just the right time is exactly what plays out. A few days later, the king and queen and Haman are feasting. The, the king asked Esther, he said, oh, by the way, at this feast, what is your request? And she says, a man has plotted to annihilate our people. The king's enraged. And he asks, who is this man? And she says, it's the guy sitting next to you eating lobster. His name is Haman. So what happens? How does the story play out? Get this, talk about a plot twist. The king orders that Haman be hanged on the exact gallows that Haman constructed to hang Mordecai, and Mordecai is put in the position of second in command. Now, i got to be honest. This is my sinful carnal, na carnal nature coming out. If I'd been Mordecai that day when Haman's being hanged out there, that huge plot twist, I'd have been out in the crowd with a shirt that just said, booyah, on it, Right? 
Like I might have yelled out, who's your daddy now, right? (laughs) I think some have called that poetic justice. And so there are two elements of this story, God's timing, that I, I want you to personalize. The first one is this, is that God's timing is impeccable. There are so many times in the Bible the phrase, it just so happened, where God is providentially, sovereignly orchestrating events recorded for us uh, in Scripture. Here in the book of Esther, it just so happened that the king had a sleepless night. It just so happened that the king heard of Mordecai's deeds and recognized them. And some may call that coincidence, but it is God's sovereign, perfect timing. And so maybe you're here and you're in a place and a situation in your life needing God to step in and do something miraculous and you see no way that God is going to intervene. You see no way how this is going to have a good ending. And so what we see here is God works in his sovereign timing. Just like in the case of the Jews in the book of Esther, sometimes God will move in such a way where it was totally unexpected, but God will always do that in his timing. Now, I've done enough counseling over the years to know that some of you hear that and wonder, then why didn't God intervene in my situation? Why wasn't that person healed physically? Why hasn't that prodigal child came home? Why hasn't that relationship reconciled? Why has that person responded with grace when I reached out to them? Why did God not intervene uh, in, in my situation? That's a fair question. So one of the truths that we're living with in the tension on this side of eternity is this, is that yes, God is sovereign and God orchestrates things in his perfect timing. Ephesians 1.11 says this, that God works all things according to the counsel of his own will. What does that mean? What that means is this. I believe this with all the depths of my conviction that you and I, when we get to heaven, we'll still see things from God's perspective and then and only then there'll be some situations that you finally see it from God's perspective and only then you'll realize that's why that happened this way. That's why God orchestrated these events. That's why God didn't provide deliverance in this situation. I now see it from God's perspective. He was doing exactly what the Bible says. He's working all things according to the counsel of his own will. And you've heard me say this many, many times. When we cannot trace God's hand, we trust his character. When we cannot make sense of his activity, we go back into his character. And one of the attributes of God is that God is a just God. What does that mean? In every single circumstance, God, by his very nature as a just God, will always do what is right. And we trust the character of God. I remember riding home in the car with one of my kids was in the back seat. And I'm just driving along, like kind of zoned out right, and they're little uh, there in the back seat. And one of them said... <laughs> And said, Dad, what about if our religion's not right? What about those people who've never heard of Jesus? And I did what every parent did. I just turned up the radio, right? Like I'm like, it's a little heavy, bro, right? <laughs> and I thought, that's a big question. So I said, well, that's a good question. People wrestle with that, you know, kind of explain. I said, but here's what we know about God. God always does what's right. Can we trust that? That God will always do what is right. And so in your situation, it may not make sense on this side of eternity, but God is working all things according to the counsel of his will, and our God is just, and God will always do what is right. And his timing is impeccable. 
And so I want you to see that here. So do not mistake God's delay for God's indifference. The second thing I want you to see is this, is that God humbles those who exalt themselves. I don't know if I should share this publicly or not, but I recently have, in the last few months, have considered resigning, becoming a social media influencer. And I do realize that not being on Twitter or Facebook is a limiting factor in that endeavor. I realize that, all right? But I don't understand how that, like, how do these people become rich and famous just by likes and retweets and shares? And, and I don't know, listen, I don't understand the technical side of how all that works. But what I do understand is this is that it requires a tremendous amount of self-promotion, which is the exact opposite of the Christian life, which is a life of self-denial, so that Christ can be promoted through us. And so it's annoying to me that when these people prosper financially so quickly, when there are humble, hard-working people who are just going about taking care of their families, doing their job every single day, and they're struggling financially. And yet these people are doing whatever it is you do on social media, and they're becoming rich overnight. But what should serve as a buoy of hope when that fact becomes really discouraging is that we rest in the truth of a God who exalts the humble and puts down the proud. We see in the book of Esther, all throughout the Bible, we read that promise, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And every time we get jaded by some self-promoting person who seems like they're getting ahead and we're struggling along, we should just remember the Bible says that pride comes before a fall. And what should happen is this, is that we should thank God that God has protected us from an environment like that where our own pride would be the cause of our demise. And so what do we do? You just be faithful and serve God and let God exalt who he chooses to exalt and God will put down the, hum, or the prideful is what scripture says. We see it right here playing out. Be encouraged by that. God works in his own sovereign timing, which is always impeccable, which brings us to the last truth when examine here the book of Esther, which is simply this is that God is for you so no enemy can stand against you. Now, let's just be honest. That sounds cliche, doesn't it? That sounds kind of cliche. Like, thank you for that good, deep, faithful word, Brad Osteen, right? <laughs> I shouldn't have said that probably. I'm overhe- it's hot up here. I'm overheating. But let me just expound on that. that. That really is a gospel truth, by the way. That once I've received Christ and my position is in Christ, then Romans chapter 8 verse 1 is true of me, is that there is con- no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God's wrath will never be poured out on me because Christ has absorbed it on my behalf. God is actually for me. God is actually loves you, not the future you that you could become. God loves you exactly who you are right now in Jesus Christ. There's not a single thing you could ever do to cause God to love you more or to cause God to love you less. That is the uncondemnation conditional love of Jesus Christ played out in your life. And so that's not a cliche, that's a gospel truth. And I don't want to be overly dramatic, but I do want to say this. Is some of you believe that truth? I mean to the point where you actually lived out of it, it would literally be life-changing for you if you would grab a hold of that truth and live out of it. You'd have a completely 
different self-image, believing that God loves you actually and is for you and is not consistently disappointed in you. So if you're listening, would you say amen this morning? Because I'm going to keep preaching this until I die. Your acceptance before God is not based on what you've done for him. It's based on what Jesus Christ has done on your behalf. And because of what he's done, God, in fact, is for me. So no enemy can stand against me. And we see that playing out here in the book of Esther, that, that when the enemies come up against them, God says, hey, it's fine, I'm for you. So it doesn't matter what enemy's coming up against you, because I, in fact, am for you. And so what happens is this, in chapters 8 and 9, uh, what we see is this, is the truth, that God doesn't make a majority. God is the majority. Edict had gone out for the Persians to annihilate the Jews on a particular day. And so the Jews are obviously mourning and lamenting this. And here's, here's the thing. I, I didn't know this this week. One of our other pastors uh, shared this with me, which is fascinating because I'm far and away the smartest pastor we have. So I was uh, shocked to learn this, right? And he said, did you know this? And I said, <laughs> I said, honestly, I said, I didn't know that. He's like, yeah. He's like, I studied this. And so, that's, so here's what he said. The king, once an edict had been given, this is, I didn't just learn this this week. Once an edict had been given, the king could not reverse it. And so the edict had gone out for the Persians to annihilate the Jews. And because that edict had gone out, it, was, it could not be reversed. But the king allows another edict to go out to all 127 provinces that the Jews should defend themselves on the day that the Persians were going to annihilate them, according to verses 10 and 11. And so the Jews said, hey, that's good news, right? Look at chapter 8. In chapter 8, verses 15 through 17. And then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. And the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province, in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And then look what happens in verse 17. It says, and many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for the fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Now do you see what's happening there? Uh, these people are identifying socially as something they could not lay claim to biologically. And I'm not making a political statement or cultural statement or some kind of cruel humor in that. What I'm telling you is uh, let the Bible is true. There really is nothing new under the sun. And so these people said, hey, we're going to get wiped out. And so anybody that asks, like, hey, the Jews are going to come annihilate us. And you know what it said? It said, all of a sudden, I'm feeling really Jew Jewish. Right? All of a sudden, they're at dinner parties going, is that kosher? Right? Like it's a game changer. Fast forward, look at chapter 9. The day of the battle comes. Chapter 9, verse 1, here's what it says. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery of them, I, I love this line. Let's look what it says. The reverse occurred. 
the Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. How great is that line? The reverse occurred. What man sought to do against God's people, God reverses it. The fear of God and the fear of Mordecai falls on the Persians. And listen, the Jews laid the smack down. That's what it says in the Greek, all right? 75,000 Persians are killed on that day. They were supposed to wipe out the Jews from the face of the planet. And even to this day, the Jews still celebrate that monumental victory and the deliverance of the Lord, what God did on that day. And the great reversal wasn't finished because now Mordecai, not Haman, was promoted to the second in command. And so the statement is not a cliche, it's true. That when God is for you, no enemy can stand against you. That God doesn't make a majority, God is the majority. God can engineer the most improbable reversals for your good and his glory. We see that all throughout scripture, we see it playing out in the book of Esther. Now, let me ask you a question. When you look around the world, you watch the news, which I'd encourage you to limit that, all right? You ever get tempted to believe that Christianity is losing? Some of you, do you get really anxious about the world that your kids and grandkids are going to inherit? Feeling like, and I don't mean this in a slang way, feeling like the world's just kind of headed to hell in a handbasket, right? You ever get discouraged by that? If so, I want you to take heart and be encouraged that the entire gospel redemptive story is a story of great reversals just like the one we read in Esther chapter 9. Think about this. Jesus won the greatest victory of all over sin and death and hell when his enemies thought they had beat him and obliterated him off the planet and a great God-ordained reversal takes place. He says, hey, you didn't actually beat me. Actually, I destroyed sin and death and hell all in one swipe. Listen to Colossians 2. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. What an incredible reversal for the gospel. Here they thought they had won. They had finally Put an end to all this uprising of Christianity, and they thought, listen, we're going to wipe him off the planet. And at the end of the day, what happens is a great gospel reversal, and God says, actually, the greatest victory that's ever been won is still going to be accomplished. And prophecy tells us that wickedness will, in fact, increase as the return of Christ inches closer. But we're still shocked and saddened at how fastly wicked wickedness progresses in our world, aren't we? It seems like every couple times a month, every few weeks, I have a conversation with someone that says, can you believe that? Something that's playing out in culture, some godlessness, some wickedness, can you believe that? Can you believe that? Actually, I can't, because you know what? The Bible says as the end of time nears, the world is going to progress in wickedness until Christ returns. But guess what? Even though the world is moving towards wickedness at a faster pace than ever, it feels like there will be yet another great reversal that will come. Let me read to you that. 
In case you're discouraged at what you see playing out and wondering how in the world is this thing going to end well for my kids and my grandkids, it's going to end well because God decreed it would. Let me read to you. And the Apostle John recorded for us in Revelation chapter 19, this is from the NLT version. And then I saw heaven opened, and a white horse was standing there. Its rider was named Faithful and True, for he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. His eyes were like flames of fire. On his head were many crowns. A name was written on him that no one understood except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his title was the Word of God. I love this verse 14. The armies of heaven. Who is that? That is the angels and those redeemed in Jesus Christ. So that's you're saved, that's you. Dressed in their finest of pure white linen, followed him on white horses. And then I saw, verse 19, the beast and the kings of the world and their armies gathered together to fight against the one sitting on the horse and his army. And the beast was captured. And with him, the false prophet who did mighty miracles on behalf of the beast, miracles that deceived all who had accepted the mark of the beast and who worshipped his name. Both the beast, listen, this is how the story ends. Every time you look around and get discouraged what you see playing out of you, take your Bible, open up and go back to this verse and read these words that are faithful and true. Both the beast and his false prophet were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Their entire army was killed by the sharp sword that came from the mouth of the one riding the white horse. So what we learn as we wrap up the book of Esther is that God engineered an incredible great reversal for the Jews' good and for his glory. But that's not the end of the story because guess what? It's going to happen again. We just read about it. And so let us not forget the God who engineered an outcome for his glory in the book of Esther is going to do it again. If you're in Jesus Christ, you'll be coming with him. And so let us not forget in this wicked world that our story, too, will have a righteous ending. And I know between now and then, there's a lot of messiness in the middle, but don't lose heart. I've read the back of the book. Jesus wins. Would you bow your head this morning? You can clap if you want. That's fine. We can celebrate that truth, right? Would you bow your heads this morning? And I want to ask you one simple question. What we just read there in the book of Revelation, that when Christ comes back with his army, let me ask you a question. Will you be with him? Will you be with him? Will you be the ones dressed in white linens that signify the cleansing of sin, not because of what you've done, but because Christ has done on your behalf, Will you be with him on that day? Is that story of great reversal, is that a part of your story? Or will you be on the outside, the wrong side, looking in? 
The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that today, you can experience your own reversal. You can come in here lost and unsaved and separated from God because of your sins. And today, right now, if you'll confess your sins, if you'll repent of them, which just means a desire to turn from them, and you'll receive Jesus Christ today as your Lord and Savior for the forgiveness of your sins, then a great reversal will take place. You'll have come in here lost and headed for hell. And by receiving Jesus Christ today, you can leave here saved, forgiven, redeemed, and headed for heaven because of the grace of God. If you're here today and you've never received Jesus Christ or you're unsure if you have, you're not here by accident. It just so happens that you're here in this moment, in this room, considering a relationship with Jesus Christ. And with everything that's in me, I implore you, say yes to Jesus. Say yes to Jesus. Confess your sins. Declare that you believe he died on the cross, was buried, and rose the third day. Express a desire to turn from sin and self-righteousness. And say yes to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Would you do that right now where you're seated? You can be saved this morning. Experience a great reversal in your own life. Father, we're grateful that in the midst of a world that sometimes is so discouraging, so dark, so wicked, that Jesus still wins. That every wrong will be made right at the hands of a sovereign, just God. And so, Lord, between now and then, help us to not live by sight. Help us to live by faith. Help, Lord, help us to realize, even this week as we leave here today, that we're not fighting for victory. We're fighting from victory. And help us to live, not, not with, a, with an arrogance, but with a humble, God-centered confidence. No matter, matter what comes against us this week, if God is for us, no enemy can stand against us. And so, God, we rejoice in the God of great reversals. And I pray that everybody who leaves today, that is their story. That they met Jesus, were headed on, on their way to hell, and they met Jesus. And a great reversal took place. And now they'll be coming back with him on a white horse. God, thank you for your grace. We're changed because of it. May we live out of it. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're here this morning.